Hey guys, Justin Ochoa back with another episode of the Gym Sessions podcast. And today we had a little bit of technical difficulties, but we were still able to get the show going, which is great. Unfortunately, I broke the most important cable that I need to actually run the show. And that is my HDMI cable that I run to my camera to be able to get the high quality video that we get. Uh, I snapped the end right off of that, just rushing through the setup. And so we are on the laptop built-in camera today. So not the best quality, but we're here. We made it and we have an amazing show. Uh, today's episode, I have on two guests, actually. I have on Lee Boyce and Melody Schoenfeld. They are the authors of my latest book purchase. It's called Strength Training for All Body Types, The Science of Lifting and Levers. And this book is all about how to, as a coach or an athlete, shape your training to the shape of your body. And so we know that there are so many unique body types and frames in sports, especially in basketball. And this book is talking about how to maximize your training with those body types. They go into detail during this episode on what body types are most relevant in basketball, how to adjust your training and modify your lifts to fit those body types to reduce the risk of injury and maximize performances and outputs. And we had a great conversation about this book. Again, strength training for all body types. It's an amazing read. I would say this is, I would say it's foundational and it's mandatory. If you really want to dive in on how to get the most out of your training as a coach with athletes of all body types. This is a great read. And we dive into that again. Then we get into some uh, hot seat questions that are always fun. But the bulk of this episode is spent on the contents of this book. And I think you guys are going to love it. So this is episode 12 again with Lee Boyce and Melody Schoenfeld. Lee, Melody, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to the show. Glad we can make this happen. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. For sure. So let's jump right in. Uh, first off, I do want to kind of, you know, give the listeners an idea of what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about the book that you guys just dropped. It's called Strength Training for All Body Types, The Science of Lifting and Levers. Really awesome book that I, I kind of read, speed read over the last three weeks. I told Lee I'm a very slow reader, so bear with me. Um, but I got through it all and it was amazing information. And I'm excited to have you guys on here to go over some of that stuff. So before we jump in and dive in on some of the higher level topics, why don't we just give an intro on who you guys are and, and kind of what got you to this point? If we can start with uh, Melody and then pass it to Lee. Uh, sure. Um, my name is Melody. Um, I, uh, I am Brad Schoenfeld's sister. That is the first thing people always ask me. So I'll get that <laughs> out of the way. Yes. Um. I own a small personal training studio in Pasadena, California. I've been in the industry for over 28 years. Um, I am a competitive uh, strongman and grip sports athlete. Um, I do old-time strongman feats of strength. That's kind of what I'm known for is I've been stealing character books and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, and I'm also very well known as being kind of like the vegan person. <laughs> mm. So like I've written two other books and one of them was on, um, the science of vegan nutrition. I do a lot of nutrition, uh, kind of coaching. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I did a book on, um, 
the science of fat loss, on the science of veganism. I've written journal articles. I've been kind of published all over the place. And uh, yeah, in a nutshell, that's me. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Lee, why don't you go ahead and give us your bio? Um, okay. 16th year trainer this year. Uh, it's been since, yeah, 2007. So I've been uh, been at it for a while. And uh, along with training, I've been a writer for the last 12 or so years. And uh, yeah, uh, doing uh, some teaching and more on the education side as well for, um, you know, I teach for a college here in Toronto and also, um, you know, just going around doing speaking and things like that where I can for, for fitness related topics. So um, that's basically been what I've been up to for the last little while, um, coaching and uh, staying true to the craft and keeping busy in that regard and keeping my own training up too. But um, yeah, sort of a culmination in terms of getting this book out there, uh, working with Melody to do it. And it's, uh, yeah, it was really after lots and lots and lots of writing, lots of articles, lots of getting published in different places and, um, you know, peer review kind of journals and uh, mainstream magazines and all that sort of stuff. So uh, yeah, it was uh, good to finally have a, a real product, a real, you know, print product of something that's uh, yeah. tangible and uh, 300 pages long instead of just 1500 words in an article in a magazine. So uh, yeah, it was uh, really great to have uh, our own thoughts out there in this, in this publication, this book that was published by human kinetics. So uh, happy for them as well, of course, for them to, to join forces with us and uh, happy for ourselves for being able to get this done and this big accomplishment for us. So we're glad. No, yeah, 100 percent, man. I, I uh, we've been, I guess, you know, Internet friends. Uh, we're, we're real friends, but never met in person. But it's been cool to see, you know, just how your trajectory has continued to go up and in the educational space and a lot of the articles that you have written are about, you know, some of the topics in the book, like, Hey, one, one size doesn't fit all. And to see you go from, you know, stack to T nation or whatever else to a, a physical copy that I actually have like in my hands, it's pretty cool. Cause I'm like, Hey, I know that guy, like that. I know the guy that wrote that. And, and now Melody, you're part of the, the friendship too, obviously. Um, and it's just been cool. You know what I mean? Just to, to see, uh, you guys come together, obviously, because you both have a unique perspective um, on unique body types and, and lifting and being uh, competitively athletic with kind of unique body types. It's really cool to see all that put into this book and you guys killed it, knocked it out of the park. So I just want to commend you on that for sure. Thanks. I'm glad you liked Thanks. it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Um, so let's jump into the book. Like, how did this come together? Like how did you guys meet or how did this book become the idea to say, Hey, we should write a book on this topic and it kind of tell us that backstory. We met at a, at a conference uh, several years ago, back, back in the pre pandemic era, P, the PP. Uh, <laughs> yeah. we, met and we just kind of really super hit it off and um, you know, we're ragging on each other the whole time, which is how I, how I show affection. Um, oh yeah, and, of course. Uh, and um, and we we kind of like, you know, we joke around about how like we're twins and stuff. And um, I, uh, you know, we we put out a video or we put it out really, um, about our um, like how how it looks different when we lift. So we did like a few different lifts, and then he kind of juxtaposed them side by side and mm -hmm. said, you know. You know, just like the, even just from a timing perspective, just all the differences. And then, of course, 
form and everything. We just look different when we lift. I know that's that's a shock, but that's you know that's that's you know I'm I'm five feet tall on a good day, and Lee's like six foot twelve or whatever he is. <laughs> so um, he's like his legs are higher than you know taller than me, and all. so um so we put that out, and that kind of uh, steamrolled, I guess that that kind of uh, got a lot of attention. And, um, and I was kind of bugging Lee for a while. I'm like, we should do a thing. Let's do a thing. And he's like, yeah, we should do a thing. Um, and then kind of like, well, write a book. And, and, uh, and I'm like, well, I would, I would like to write a book. And I was like, so I pitched it to, to my publisher who, uh, who did my last book. And they were like, yeah, you're, uh, that's a cool idea and all, but you're, there's no, like, there's not enough, uh, information on that. So that's not going to make a good book. And I'm like, <laughs> I want to bet. And, uh, 300 pages <laughs> later, here we are. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so Lee, kind of from your perspective, you know, when, when Melody approaches you like, Hey, let's write a book. <laughs> Talk about like where your, what your mind frame was during that time and, and what you saw the vision could be. Cause obviously both of you guys believed in it to a certain extent at the time. Yeah. The, the funny thing is, is actually a three or so months prior, um, human kinetics reached out to me, uh, individually and they said, would you be interested in uh, byline authoring this uh, book idea? And this book idea was for a book on metabolic conditioning. And I really like I was that's always what I wanted to do was write a book sometime in my career after I'd spent mm -hmm. time doing this for a living. And so I was like, man, a major publisher is reaching out to me to write a book. This is the chance like I'm not getting another chance like this. So I was like, um, can I think about it? I don't really know what to tell you yet. And the reason why was because not only was it a little daunting, but it was more so I was ambivalent because the subject wasn't something I was passionate about at all. It's one thing right. to find your way into writing 2,000 words on a certain subject that you might not be as passionate about. But to write 150,000 words broken up into like 15 chapters, that's a totally different ballgame. And, you know, then you have to have a million citations, references, and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's, it's just a different animal and to do that about metabolic conditioning, there's no way I would have even been able to finish. I know I wouldn't have been able to finish. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to have to turn this down. I'm really sorry and sad to say that I can't, I don't think that I'm confident enough to do this. And, um, that was it. So when that was in and around the time, uh, I'm trying to remember when it was exactly, it was during the pandemic, I believe maybe it was in early 2020. And so by late 2020, when Melody said, let's uh, write a book together uh, on this subject of strength training and, and uh, levers and lifting and all that stuff, um, I was like, well, that's something I'm more passionate about. And you have the connections at the human kinetics as well. Like, let's let's go for it. Why not? Mm -hmm. So I was way more excited about that one. And I was just glad because it was like it almost kind of all worked out in a certain way for like, you know, for lack of a better yeah. term, it just seemed it was like it it just it was serendipitous almost so i was like yeah i'm all about this one hopefully human kinetics gives me another chance after i just turned them down for this first one and uh, <laughs> luckily luckily with uh with melody's firepower as well they were able to go for it and so yeah two years later or just shy of two years later we wrote the book uh we finished it it was a lengthy process it was a detailed process and it was a um, kind of tedious process at certain points and uh but mm -hmm. we got it done you know, photo shoot, developmental editing, copy editing, um, proofread, all sorts of stuff. So it was, it was, it was a lot. That's awesome. That's cool to hear the backstory. Go ahead, Melody. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, I'm just here to hear Lee say process. 
<laughs> I was going to say, so I, I skipped that part of the intro. Melody, where are you originally from? Because we know where Lee's from. I'm from New York originally. I live in Los Angeles now. Um, That's not too far from Canada. Not too no, far. South. <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, Lee and I have talked a lot about hoops in the past and, and just basketball in general. So I, I think the, you know, to, to Lee's background story on passing up an opportunity it's kind of the analogy we use in basketball is you know passing up a good shot to get a great shot and it and it usually works out better for the team and and for the individuals involved too so I think there's something to be said there and and I think like for me I have a problem with saying no a lot and it's it's gotten me into trouble so I just respect the you know the self-awareness and and the ability for you to analyze a situation that is really enticing and like pretty much a dream come true and just say like, that's not right for me right now, or it's not the, the thing that I need to do right now and, and pass that up. And and it comes back to you, you know, eventually the universe will repay you, but that's just a really cool story and, and kind of a lesson within that kind of folded in to say, you know, sometimes saying no is difficult, but it, it will pay off in the end. Uh, moving on, I want to talk about that writing process, right? So you guys both mentioned that it was kind of a daunting process and something that's like, you know, not a lot of people just write books. It's 150,000 words. I think the most I've ever written um, was like 10,000. And I definitely thought that I was like going to turn it into a book. And I was like, oh, wait, this is like three chapters. Wait, no, I'm done. I have nothing more to say. So talk about that process. Like, how did you guys communicate that? Was it, you know, a shared document or was it like, Hey, bring all your thoughts and I'll bring all mine and we'll mash them together. What, what does that even look like when you co-author a book of this magnitude? We kind of decided to just split it up evenly. So I was like, all right, you take these chapters. I'll take these chapters and we'll just go with it. Um, I had to write the physics chapter. Um, (laughs) that one that was yeah, I had to do that um but yeah no uh, you know it's funny because the uh, the this is a very different process from the last thing I wrote because the last thing I wrote was already finished when they asked for it I had already mm. written a book and they were like what do you got and I was like well, I have this and they were like let's do that one um so I was just ready to I think I had a pre-written like I'd already done all the work and all they did was look at it and be like yep we like that let's let's go forward with that right um this was starting from scratch, like from the idea and going through the whole process. So it was quite different uh, for me. Um, And it took us a a long time because pulling research about this stuff is hard. There's not a ton of it. Um, And, and the stuff that's out there isn't like, there's not like massive troves of it. So we have to kind of pick and choose the studies that are worth looking at. Um, and then combine that with experiential knowledge and all. And um, it's, uh, I'm definitely more of a scientific writer. Lee is definitely more of a, like, experiential writer. And so, um, you know, a lot of times um, it would be like, hey, let's, let's get a citation on that one. You know, stuff like that. Because mm. I'm a little picky about that. I'm like, no, if you're going to say that, you got to cite it. And uh, so then, you know, a lot of, a lot of researching on uh, what's out there for certain things. That's awesome. Lee, you want to add anything to that? Uh, this is uh, very much the, what the process was like. And um, 
I'm just trying to think. Yeah, we, we did split it up uh, chapter to chapter. And um, yeah, by the end of it, like the, the good thing about it was that it worked quite smoothly with all those things that Melody said considered, you know, like there weren't too many. If you read one chapter to the next, it's kind of hard to tell who wrote what. And that's a good thing because there's um, there's a little bit of a what's the word I'm looking for? It, it, it blends nicely. There's a continuity to it. Right. And uh, the voice remains the same throughout and the, the message and the, the whole theme of the book remains the same throughout. So it doesn't feel like it's disjointed. It doesn't feel like it's too choppy or anything like that. There aren't real you know, differences in perspective or opinion from one chapter to the next just because I wrote one and she wrote a different one. And so um, that's what we're the most pleased with. And with all that said as well, all of what I'm saying here, it all happened on our first try, if that makes sense. Right. Mm. So we didn't have to rewrite this entire chapter or cut off half the book and then do it all over again because this just doesn't sink in or whatever or doesn't fit so it was it was really good it was um it was smooth in that regard and so you know whether it was a lucked out thing or it was just a chemistry thing that works really well between us it just uh, it was a great great pairing and so it just made the process a lot easier like i would almost say like, the photographs were, were the most complicated thing out of all of it <laughs> yeah like, that was a pain in the yeah. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. Just I, I, what you said Lee, makes sense, and and uh, I, I get that. Like that's why I asked if there was like a a shared document or anything like that because there is one voice throughout. It's not like you can't tell any major differences um, from chapter to chapter, which is really cool. And like I've never co-authored a book before, but I would imagine it would be it's difficult because it's not all your thoughts. Like you have to welcome other thoughts to the table as well, even if you uh, weren't thinking of them at the time. So that's pretty cool that it turned out so smooth. Um, I do want to talk about some of you guys individual uh, experiences, if you will, um, with being unique shapes. Like Melody said, she's five foot on a good day and Lee, you're six twelve on a bad day. So uh, I guess we could start with Melody and say, you know, what, talk about your personal experience on how all this stuff that you finally wrote in a book has been affecting you, or I guess not affecting, but influencing your lifting or athletic career, you know, for, for so many years. Well, you know, once I stopped powerlifting and went into strongman and, and grip sports and stuff, basically powerlifting is a great sport if you're a small person, because you never have a weight that has to travel very far. Right. But sports I do now are, I am not built for anything I do now, which is kind of part of the, I guess, part of the attraction for me is I like doing stuff that I am not that good at, I guess. Um, Cause I try to, it, it makes me want to get better. Um, so I have very small hands. I'm built like a T-Rex. I'm short and stumpy, you know? And so like doing stuff like stone lifting or whatever, getting my arms around and, you know, in strongman, the, um, the lightweight category is usually 140 pounds and under. I'm 105. Um, so, you know, competing against people who weigh 30 pounds more than me, I'm never going to be as good as that. Never, no matter what. Um, and so, um, so it's really just a matter of like, I have to learn to be humble and simply want to be better than I was last time rather than, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to be getting that, that person who outweighs me by a whole bunch you know i'm probably not going to outlift that person i mm -hmm. might probably not it'd be cool if i did but i'm probably not 
Um, so yeah, everything I do, it's kind of like, I'm not built for this. So how can I use my body mechanics to their best advantage so that I have a fighting chance in this sport? And so that's how I, that's how I kind of design all my workouts. It's like, okay, what do I, what do I need to do with my hands to get the most surface area on this giant thing that I'm trying to pick up with my, you know, fingers or what, you know, what can I do to get my arms around a really big stone so that I can lift it? Because everyone else in my weight category is going to be able to do that stuff like that. Awesome. And then Lee, I know you you're the the king of tall guy Tuesdays, and so I've been I've been literally like consuming your experience first have firsthand uh, for years now. But talk a little bit about you know some of the 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 lifting journey that you've had as just being a bigger and taller guy. Um, my lifting journey is interesting because uh, I, I only really realized that there's got to be a difference between how weight acts on uh, different sized individuals based on, you know, my experiences of getting injured or maybe doing a certain fixed workout that um, requires certain amounts of rest between sets that one person might recover much easily, much more easily from than another person might, you know, um, the size of the individual really matters. And, um, you know, movements like squats, for example, uh, that's a huge one. And deadlifts were the ones that I would normally like, you know, get in some back tweak situations and stuff like that. And so it made me start questioning more about like, well, why is this happening? Right. And the answers were obviously out there. It's not like I came up with the answers in any way, shape or form, but it's just that the answers are so they're usually some kind of like, okay, do A if you want B to happen or whatever, right? X equals Y, whatever. And it wasn't something that was more, it never really took into consideration the fact that, okay, well, the one constant, the common denominator here is the weight coming off the ground from point A to B. The thing that mm -hmm. varies is the size, the levers of the individual, their starting posture and so on. I can show a six, eight guy what good form looks like or good starting angles geometry looks like. And I could show a five foot person what good starting angles geometry looks like. And in both cases, even with good form, the weight's still going to act differently on their bodies, right? And so this is something that's not talked about enough, even till now in the industry and in the fitness industry. And it needs to be spoken of more is that, you know, body type and body proportions, there is an ideal body type for certain lifts. And some people don't have them and other people do have them. If they don't have that body type for one lift, maybe they're a better body type for another completely different lift. So what are we doing about that? And how are we going to sort of uh, uh, apply this sort of uh, thinking into our programming? Anyway, all of that is just to say that in my own lifting, I started thinking a little bit more critically in those regards. Uh, one way that I really noticed it as well was in uh, the terms of like body weight training, you know, big guy at the time I was probably, you know, 265, that kind of weight trying to do like crack out a bunch of chin-ups or doing tons of push-ups or trying to do a whole bunch of calisthenic work or whatever. It's like, well, that's not as easy as somebody who's a little gymnast, for example, right? And, you know, by the numbers, I'm a pretty strong guy. I can lift a lot, but how come I just crumble like crazy when I'm doing these, these bodyweight exercises? So absolute strength versus relative strength and those differences there, that factored into it. And it just made me start thinking along and down that path a lot more. And then, uh, yeah, you compound that with, you know, a back tweak from deadlifting or you compound that with uh, the knee injury that I had back in 2017 playing basketball and stuff. And it's like, OK, now I'm going to have to think a little bit differently in terms of how I even load these joints because there's more at stake for me. 
right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, just as a taller lifter with bigger lever arms and heavier body mass and all of that stuff, what, uh, what changes need to be made and how does this apply to just the general public? So that's where I went with things. And uh, it turned into, you know, the, the tall guy Tuesday thing and uh, noticing that there are some exceptions or changes that need to be made and mods made for uh, bigger lifters, taller lifters, lifters who are long limbed and might not be tall by height. They might be, you know, 5'10 guy or something like that, but maybe they got the wingspan of somebody who's 6'4", right? And so uh, what happens in that case in terms of what those weights are doing to their shoulder joint when they try to do the press? Or what happens when they have long legs and they're trying to find their way into a deep front squat or back squat, but you know their 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 mobility isn't supporting that, and so they don't have the range that they should, and so they pitch forward like crazy. So all those types of things, and um, you know, I, I do consider myself a pretty good technician when it comes to uh, the major lifts, and um, I have more mobility than a lot of people my height and size tend to have. And so it's about a question of like, why is that? Like, what's going on with me that's different than this person over here who's my height, my size, and they pitch forward like crazy when they squat? You know, oh, well, maybe it's their ankle dorsiflexion. Maybe they don't have strong quads. Maybe their knees aren't healthy enough. Maybe their hips don't have this. Maybe their hip anatomy is different, so the squat's not even going to work for them at all in this regard, right? So there's so many different factors that go into it, and um, it's just good to be able to be talking about it and to be rewriting about it and all that stuff. So. Um, yeah, that's sort of what set the path along. And, and for the last, I would say, what am I, 36 now? So I'd say since I was about 27 or so, or 28, I'd say 28 is when I really started uh, thinking about this stuff, writing short articles on the subject of taller lifters and issues they might have and all that sort of stuff. I remember my first one was for T Nation, and it was somewhere around 2013 or so. So it's been a while. That's awesome. Yeah, and for me, like the the big reason why I picked this book up, uh, not only to support but that's just like who I work with. You know what I mean? Like I'm a, I, I'm with basketball players all day long. And so you see some, some really odd frames, like just some, some really oddly built guys and gals. And, um, your information, your information in the book is speaking to that. So I figured it's going to be an amazing resource for that population. Um, let's talk about some of these. Uh, body types that you guys have. You, I think there's like 13 different um, body types that you guys mentioned. And in the book, you, you you say like, obviously we're not covering every single different body type here, but these are some really, really common ones. Um, you guys can maybe talk about a few that might be common for basketball players that are featured in the book. And then we can kind of dive in on those. I mean, there are as many body types as there are body parts, really, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. you can have longer or shorter bones in any part of your body. And there are basketball players like, you know, Spud Webb, who doesn't fit the prototype, you know, mm -hmm. um, but, they, but they take advantage of other, you know, other other abilities that they may have that give them a, a leg up, so to speak, on the court, you know, so. So the obviously the average basketball player is going to be taller than me, um, you know. Whereas I would be the ball. Um, <laughs> um, but you know, even if I were to get on the court and and try to compete with these guys, obviously I'm not going to be able to have the wingspan or any of that stuff. But I am going to have to figure out how I can manipulate my body so that I can at least compete at least at least you know stay be on the field with them 
So I, it may be a power training that I need to do. It may be a, uh, it may be, a, you know, really practicing, you know, throwing because with a short, you know, with a short arm span, my throw is not going to go very far comparatively. So I may have to really work triceps, shoulders, things like that in order to, in order to stay relevant out there. And, you know, in comparison to somebody who looks like Lee, who's just like, dump, you know, so it's, uh, mm-hmm. so it's really about figuring out where your disadvantages are and what you need to do to, uh, to work on those more than anything. And then it may be a technique thing and it may be a training thing and it may be probably a combination of both. Yeah, in this book here, we got um, we got thirteen. So it is uh, there's from the basic ones. So you know, tall. What's what's considered tall? What's considered a shorter lifter for both male and female bodies as well? Uh, we talk about big all over. So that doesn't so much have to do with their height or their levers, but it has more to do with just like how much mass, how much space are you taking up front to back? Your width? Are you just a big dude or a big chick? Like all those kinds of things. Right. And then we go into a little bit more detail, you know, short arms, long legs, the reverse, long arms and short legs, you know, um, short torso, long legs, like all those different uh, combinations, long torsos. Uh, What kinds of body types out of all of these different uh, combinations would now be the most optimal for the squat pattern? What body type might be the most optimal for the overhead press and so on and so forth. And we go through the major lifts, not only finding and pinpointing which of these body types might be the best for the, for the lift itself in terms of the, the physics and efficiency of the movement and keeping it strong and injury free, but also what troubleshooting tips can people with other body types now uh, go ahead and embark upon if they don't fit this category for the lift. Right. So let's say that the squat, we talk about the squat and saying that, you know, if you have shorter legs and a longer torso, you're probably going to be prone to being a pretty good squatter by with all things equal. So this for the back squat, which is a standard, which a lot of people consider the standard. So if you're not that, but you want a back squat, what happens if you have very long legs and a short torso and you're trying to do that? Right. Um, what's it going to rely more on for you to make it look something like the shorter legged person? You know, maybe you'll need more ankle mobility for your shin angle to match your torso angle. Maybe you're going to need more of this or more of that, or you're going to need to be able to switch the, the variation so that you're now doing front squats or you're doing box squats or you're doing something else that's uh, going to be more suitable for your body type. Because the other thing is you can do the thing and you could have the wrong body type for a movement, but still do that movement that, it, that requires that or that asks for that great body type. However, is there going to be more, what's the word, collateral damage, I guess, or is there going to be more of a risk reward that's going to be in question when you do it the conventional way? So a great example of that would be the deadlift, right? You get one of your ball players to do a deadlift, they're six foot seven, they want to go conventional from the floor, right? You could make them coach up into great technique, you could coach them up into having fantastic mobility and flexibility to set up for the movement and lift it clean, make it look great, right? They could even get pretty strong with it as well. But because they're going to be in a deeper hinged position than somebody who's got shorter legs and who's five, six and so on, they might have, or not might, they absolutely will have more work that they're performing, especially by way of their lower back to hip extend because they're in a more hinged position and the weight's traveling further. So with work being forced times distance, they're going to be, be dealing with more time under tension and more stress forces for the entire duration of the movement. Compound that with I know multiple reps of multiple sets cumulatively over the course of a week or a training month, 
how many times are we programming this movement for the individual who is less fit for that lift, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's the question that we start to try to answer depending on who's unfavorably built for a lift. It's not only about being able to get mobile or flexible or skilled enough to perform the lift. It's about still finding and troubleshooting and finding those variations that are going to work really well for that individual so that they can add volume to it and not have to worry about as much risk as the person who's well built for it, just based on their body type and based on the variation they choose. So that's what makes this book pretty unique. It makes it a good resource for people to have. And it's a guide for not only lifters, but for trainers who are coaching clients, because it's not only athletes that deal with these issues, it's everybody, you know, Bob from accounting, Deborah from finance, all those people old, young, like they're all going to have body types that vary. You know, if I was just a, a person working at a bank right now, you know, I still have long legs, long arms and a short torso when I'm six foot four. Right. So nothing changes just depending on what you do. It's, it's all the same. And with that being said, we should still think about these things with a critical eye, with a critical mind and with uh, just critical thinking skills so that we can apply this to everybody. Um, clients, Lifters, trainers, us ourselves, us trainers as lifters, that that too. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's something we believe every single person who picks it up can pull something from and benefit from. Yeah, no doubt. And and like you mentioned, more work, um, more time under tension. That also leaves a little bit more room for mistakes. So just, you know, like you said, you can coach them up perfectly, but you're allowing more opportunities for small little tiny mistakes to happen. And even though if it might look good in that moment, those could compound and, and lead to something, you know, unfavorable, whether it be an injury or serious or uh, not serious, it's always something that we're trying to avoid. Um, I always like to say like the weight room should be the safest place about sports, like sports are chaotic Sports are, are nuts. Like you probably at some point will get hurt playing your sport. Unfortunately, it's just like the reality of it. If you play for long enough, but to have weight room injuries is like unexcusable, especially when you start to work with million dollar athletes and, and people who are, are paying the bills by putting the ball through the rim. Um, I want to talk about you guys did a really good job of separating these body types, but also relating them back to the core movements. So yes, there's a ton of body types and, and you got 13 of them and you probably could have put 13 more, but you kept it to the push, the pull, the hinge, the squat. Um, and then some auxiliary stuff, like some overhead stuff and single leg stuff. So talk about just how foundational those movement patterns are. And then some of the ways, obviously, that are covered in the book, but we can talk about it here, like how you can mold a program to the athlete rather than stick a athlete into a program. I'm all about like catering to the weakest link, you know, and those, those, I, I call them the, the big movements, you know, all of those big movements, they use the most number of joints, right? So mm -hmm. they tend to be, especially just kind of for the average Joe, they give you the most bang for your bucks, so to speak. But then, you know, a lot of what you do, for instance, on the court, you better be able to jump. And if you want to be able to jump, you should probably be squatting. You know, you should probably be deadlifting um, because you're going to get some good leg and hip power out of that. Um, you probably should be pressing because guess what? You have to throw the ball. 
from here to there. And so you should have some power in that direction. And that's also all about triceps, all about deltoids, things like that. So these are very efficient ways to get very strong very quickly in a lot of ways. And of course, there is a lot of variety within those movements. So it doesn't even necessarily have to be, oh, it has to be a barbell deadlift all the time. No, it doesn't. It could be a dumbbell deadlift. It could be a kettlebell deadlift. It could be a hex bar deadlift. It could be a single leg deadlift. It just depends on what you're trying to get out of the movement. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to the weakest link. And to me, like a lot of this stuff is weightlifting is about efficiency of movement. If you elongate a path, you're making things much, much harder on yourself and your body. And so when we're dealing with limb lengths, we have to figure out how to kind of stack everything up in a way that works for that person to keep them pain-free but efficient in that movement. And it's not necessarily going to look like the textbook. And so that's, you know, that's really why, why we need kind of this kind of book that, that goes, goes outside the, the boundaries <laughs> of, the, of the textbook form. Yeah, when it comes to uh, these lifts, like Melody was saying, um, you know, it's there's a reason why these things are categorized like, you know, squat, push, pull, hinge, right? Rather than talking about, you know, back squat, deadlift, yep. uh, row. And, you know, because as soon as we start looking at it from, from an exercise perspective, even how Melody was just listing different variations of the deadlift there, right? If we start talking about just different variations of the hinge pattern, we get even more options, but it still effectively will train the posterior chain. What about a reverse hyperextension? What about a pull-through pattern? Let's say a hip thrust or a glute bridge. These are all different versions of hinges as well, right? And so when we open up the, the landscape to that many options, even though you're staying under the umbrella of principles of training, and that's something that we talk about in chapter one and two, principles versus rules, right? Um, when we talk about principles of training and we make sure that we can all agree on the fact that these principles are very important. In general, it's going to be a safe bet for you to squat with your heels on the ground, with your knees not going, not where your toes are going, uh, with your torso staying pretty much straight while you do it in terms of the spine staying neutral. These are all things that every coach under the sun who's worth their salt is going to agree is a good thing to focus on when teaching the squat pattern to somebody, right? If we start splitting hairs or we start saying, okay, here are some rules about squatting. Uh, your knees should never pass your toes or you should always break parallel, or you should always be shoulder width apart with your feet, right? This is where we paint ourselves into a corner in terms of what uh, should or shouldn't be done because it takes away that individuality of things, right? And so when we're doing uh, coaching with people, if we're coaching people or if we're working uh, on our, out on our own, um, we want to keep our options as open as possible, just like we want to keep an open mind toward the fact that different body types exist out there. And that we might not have the same uh, physical skeleton as somebody else will. And so that might modify how we set up for a lift, what lift we choose, how much we do a certain lift, and all those other things. So that's, uh, that's really the long and short of it as far as uh, the individuality perspective or uh, standpoint of things and why it's so important to, A, read this book and have it in existence in the first place, but um, B, just to uh, keep an open mind and the critical thoughts toward that stuff. It's super important. Yeah, like Melody was saying, it's, it's different than the textbook. And, and I think that's so important because the textbooks that, that we read and, and yeah, they're, they're fundamental. And, you know, to get your, your CSCS or your CPT or whatever, you're, you're going to read the most general information out there. But I would love to see something like this be a part of, um, 
the literature demanded by universities to, to be able to achieve these types of degrees, because it just, it it paints a real picture of like real life. You know what I mean? Like some of these foundational textbooks are great and they're packed with full of information that's foundational to, you know, learning the basics. Um, and some of the basics that aren't even important. Like I can't remember the last time a client asked me what the process of the Krebs cycle was. And if they did, I probably wouldn't know it. So it's like some of this stuff is more relevant to what they're going to deal with in the real world. And that mixed with a combination of some type of internship or shadowing, they'll quickly see like, Oh yeah, this book here is talking about that. Like what I'm seeing in person. So what I see in person is a lot. I got it pulled up here is, is the short torso, long legs, tall, long femurs. I mean, I'm generalizing, but we see a lot of that. Um, that's going to be, you know, long arms as well. And that, and you guys covered two bases that I, that I like to utilize a lot. And that's recommending the best variation for that body type to be a front squat. Um, and then recommending, the grip hack for guys with long arms who fit that or, or girls with long arms as well to wrap a lifting uh, wrist wrap around the barbell so that it kind of extends your, your hand. And so you can get the elbows up. Let's talk about some of the components of why that's such a good option for this body type. And, and, you know, just some of the components of, keeping that that upright torso and and being able to get into deep flexion at the knees and things like that as it pertains to basketball and, and jumping ability and all that good stuff. I would argue that that's a great move for, for a lot of people. So <laughs> yeah. many people have the shoulder flexibility. I, I can't even tell you how many people uh, are like, I can't, I can't get into this position. This isn't doable for me. Most people just don't have it. And even for a lot of people, the cross-arm position isn't isn't workable. And so that is such a great hack for people to, you know, in a, in a regular bar squat, you know, you have to have pretty good shoulder mobility to make that work. I mean, it's about getting your elbows back and bringing your hands as close to together as you can. You can go really wide with it too. Um, it's a little less stable that way, but this kind of solves that whole issue with needing a great deal of shoulder mobility in order to even do that movement. And most most people, especially if you work at a desk all day, you're probably not going to be able to get them back there without at least some degree of discomfort. Yeah. Also, um, when it comes to the front squat, like you were you were asking there about uh, why it's important to have that vertical torso and whatnot. First of all, when there's a load on the front of your body versus the back of your body, 99 out of 100 people are going to be more upright because they have to counterbalance against that load with the weight on the front. And so um, with that being said, the other thing that is so great about the front squat is the fact that uh, or front squat variations, especially for longer legged lifters, is the fact that since you're allowed to go deeper, it's going to make it easier for your knees to travel forward over your toes. And because you're going to that deeper knee flexion with more dorsiflexion like that, you're going to access your quads. Now, this is something that not a lot of people talk about because they always speak in the name of mobility and flexibility of the quadriceps. Um, two things. Number one, the quadriceps are often weak. <laughs> they're not <laughs> only maybe in tissue quality and maybe they're immobile. Maybe they're all that stuff. Maybe they're inflexible. Maybe they're immobile, the hip joint. But they're also, they could be a weak link because we're, we're 
often not getting the chance to access them. And there's a lot of functional coaches out there who don't really do too much direct leg extensions or exercises like that. And that's perfectly fine. But there aren't too many exercises that put your knee in deep flexion otherwise, right? If you really think about it, even if you do a walking lunge with a standard step, you know, you're only getting to 90 degrees each time, right? Because the floor is going to block you, right? So with that being said, going into some nice deep front squats gets you to extend the knee from a really flexed position. And that's really important for strengthening people's quads, which could be a weak link that is involved in their knee dysfunction, in their knee discomfort, in their, their issues that they have with chronic pain and stuff like that. So that's number one. And number two about the quads is that the quads also have a role in hip flexion. And that's the other thing that a lot of people don't pay attention to. They think knee extension all the time without knowing that the quads do pass the hip joint with one of the muscles, the rectus femoris, right? And so with that being said, if one of your quads is a hip flexor, then what are we doing from that position to help it with a hip flexion, right? That could be a big stabilizer in terms of, uh, and now front squats aren't going to really hit that aspect of it, but it could be a big stabilizer in terms of just making sure that A, the knee and the hip both function correctly. So all of that is to say that directly targeting the quads a little bit more and not just thinking that the quads need to be only foam rolled and only stretched out and only mobilized from the hip and stuff like that. We got to sort of change our perspective from that. And, um, you know, it gets into a huge conversation about what mobility actually is and what it really means and how tension relationships exist throughout the entire body. Um, but back to the front squat, the front squat is a great way to access those quads with the straps. It's great because it's more accessible for most people. If you're big, you can't reach there like that. Then you have those straps, you have the opportunity to keep the weight there and actually use some appreciable load at the same time. So you're not limited by maybe a heavy dumbbell, for example. Right. So it's a, it's a really, really good variation. And the front squat for a lot of people, not even just the tall folk are, it's a, it's a real king exercise. hundred percent. Um, Moving on to deadlift, I know, uh, Melody, you're a deadlift fan because uh, it's in your Instagram bio, so it must be important to you. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about some of these deadlifts that you guys have. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the trap bar or the hex bar for this population. Um, we've actually kind of turned it into our number one lift. Like that's our that's our hinge, that's our KPI, and then. We actually do do jumps as well, and that's kind of like our progress version as we get into like power phases and kind of replacing a lot of the Olympic lifting that that we do. Um, but something mentioned in here was something I had not thought of, and that's the rollaway setup for this this population, which is long legs again, short torso, and in a traditional barbell deadlift setup rather than setting up, you know, shoulders above the bar or slightly in front or whatever cues you want to use, you're, you're actually rolling that bar away from you, sinking down in a squat and then rolling it towards you until it basically hits your shins and then coming up. Can you guys talk about that, um, that method and some of the benefits with that? Cause I like that. Uh, okay, well, I wrote that part particularly. Uh, it's <laughs> I was going to say, it is you, so I, I should have directed that to you in the picture. Yeah. Um, but yeah, oh, I forgot that I was even in the photo for it. Jeez, okay. Um, but yeah, no, so Got it. It, it's, something <laughs> it's something that's very close to me in terms of, um, like, I'm pretty passionate about this particular subject within deadlifting because it has to do with just uh, what what assumes tension and control of the pelvis at what points in time as you're setting up for the lift. And so a lot of taller lifters, a lot of people who have a far way to travel or a far way to go down to reach for that bar, uh, they could benefit from this uh, this cue 
in order to get their back to stay nice and flat or nice and slightly extended when they're getting ready for their pulls. So what it is, is we got to think about the direction the muscles uh, fire first. So your glutes and hamstrings, they contract this way. They go downwards. They're both involved in posterior tilting of the pelvis, right? And so the lower back, actually, it's more involved in anterior tilting of the pelvis because it creates that arch once it's tight and it's once it's all contracted and stuff. So what a lot of people get into the habit of, or they'll go right above the bar, they'll reach down for it, and they'll try to arch their back, but the tension that's in their hams and glutes already, especially their hamstrings, it won't let go of the pelvis. So you're still stuck in that posterior tilt when you reach down. You're trying to fix that. You're trying to get your back to go from this into this position, but you can't really do it, right? And so the best way that I've found to do this is to move the bar away from you and drop all the way down first. Don't even worry about what your back looks like. It could completely round out like crazy when you drop down to the, uh, the full ATG squat. And the reason why is because that's going to fully posteriorly tilt your pelvis so that your hamstrings can get a little bit slacker, a little bit looser, and they're not pulled taut the same way that they were at the top. And so then when you roll the bar in again, you're still down low. You roll the bar in close to you, and then you sort of squat up into your starting position. So you get mm -hmm. tight from the bottom up. It's much, much easier for you to now take advantage of the fact that your hamstrings aren't loose and they're, they're not tight, sorry, and they're not pulling on that pelvis, and you can now get into position a lot more easily. So your back will stay a lot more neutral, it'll get more arched or whatnot, and you're going to get into the proper pulling geometry so you can get your first pulls in and get the rest of your pulls in properly. And the cool thing about it is, is that on subsequent repetitions of a deadlift, usually your body now adapts to the loaded stretch that the weight in your hands is going to sort of create for you on your way down to your next repetition. So you sort of set the tone from the beginning, and then the next reps will carry you through so you're not in that hump back position for your remaining reps with all things being equal. So it's a great little tool, the roll away method, just roll it away, squat down, then step up into your position instead of going and reaching down from the top down into position it makes it a lot more accessible for lifters who have a long way to go up and down. And so it's a cue and a tip that I, I use uh, a lot, even personally, especially when I was lacking mobility during my injury, that was a huge thing for me. And also um, something that I recommend for a lot of my clients too. Melody, that's not your method, is it? <laughs> That one doesn't, I don't need that. Um, I'll say that most of my clients, I have them do something similar because in my experience, it is easier to get into position from a standing position than from a down position. I mean, obviously, if you're taller, you should start in a down position. But for a lot of people, it's easier to start standing because they can feel their spine better. And you start with that bar away from you. A lot of people try to walk up on the bar Mm. And it, it, they get all befuddled because they don't know what to do with their shins at that point. So if you start in your ready position and then you kick your hips back and then you roll the bar in, it tends to work a lot better form-wise. In, in for a lot of I like that too because it's like you know how sometimes whether any deadlift really I think this is a common issue whether it's you know barbell or hex bar or whatever is like the lack of tension or I guess the the problem of too much slack at the start so it's almost you have like two poles like you start the pull and then you get the tension of the weight and then you hit that little like hiccup and then you pull but now you've lost your position so it kind of eliminates that because as you're in that squad or, or really both you guys as examples like 
you already have that tension through your lats and you're already moving that bar towards your body. So now the bar's not floating away from your body when you hit that that um, initial pull. It's like all coming up smooth, which is like all we want. That's all that's all, all I want my athletes to do is just make it look smooth. I'm like, I don't even care how much weight's on the bar. Just make it one motion, like get rid of the hitch and everything will be fine from there. So um, I want to talk a little bit about like, I don't even know how to word this. I'm, a lot of the things that we've talked about, whether it be the uh, the straps on the bar for a barbell front squat or lifting from an elevation in a deadlift, these are what I would call like solutions that, that fix an issue that a certain body type is going to run into mo- in most cases. So how much of your time as a coach are you allotting to fixing that issue with things like that, like elevating the bar or putting a strap on the bar to increase that front squat mobility versus how much are you, how much time are you spending like fixing or trying to fix the root cause? Like some of this stuff we can't fix, right? We can't make a a person's legs longer or shorter. Um, But some of it might be soft tissue base where maybe we can loosen up the shoulders the triceps and get into that front rack position without that. What are, what are some of the examples there and, and some of the thought processes that go into that like continuum? And hopefully that makes sense because I don't know if that is a, is a, a good, you know, communication of what I'm trying to ask, but hopefully you guys understand. No, it's a very case by case basis to me. Um, and like, for instance, if I have, if, if one of my clients, I don't work with a lot of, I, I have worked with professional athletes, but the, the most of my clients are average shows. And if somebody comes in and they're all jacked up, I'm probably not going to load them until they're not jacked up. And so we'll do mobility stuff. I actually am a massage therapist, so I might do some work on them, um, whatever, it seems that they need in the moment to get their body in a position that would be safer to load, but I'm not going to load somebody whose body's all, all screwed up that day. So generally I'll, I'll switch focus to a mobility day that day, which is still going to be work for, for most people. That's still like doing, doing mobility work. Isn't like passive. Um, so it's still work. It's just different kind of work. Um, so, um, you know, generally it's like, it's, it's always going to be like an itty, sorry, my dog just started snoring, um, it's, it's, uh, but it's going to be an, an it depends kind of thing. Like if somebody walks through your door, number one, is it going to be safe to load them considering what they came in with? And number two is what they have going on fixable or, or is it within my scope of practice? I should mm-hmm. say to fix what's going on. I think a lot of personal trainers are trained or, or even some coaches go in with this mindset of going outside their scope of practice, like trying to diagnose people or trying to, um, you know, correct stuff, you know, doing corrective things where they may not understand completely what needs to be corrected in those instances. And so it just really, it depends. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, one thing that uh, I think needs to be established at the beginning as well for, for to answer your question as well is that, um, you know, we wrote this book that's all about big lifts. And, you know, we do have one chapter that deals with accessory stuff and so on. And then we have some programming examples at the end. 
but it, the 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 whole book centrifugates around the big lifts in these uh, you know the six key chapters particularly. Now the thing about it is that even though those are there, and even though we believe in these movements and all the variations of these movements and so on, it doesn't mean that those movements are what should occupy or what do occupy all of our training time with our clients or even with ourselves, right? Um, so if somebody presents an issue. And we maybe have made a modification to a deadlift or I've maybe made a modification to a deadlift so that it's a uh, uh, trap bar or so that it's a, a elevated surface deadlift, like you said, or rack pull or whatever, you know, there will still be accessory movements that really make up the rest of the 60 minute session to possibly address those issues. If they do have issues from one side to the other, the bilateral stance movement isn't going to do that great at, at solving that problem compared to some unilateral training, for example. Right, uh, mobility-based work or calisthenic work or things that make them more accountable for managing their own body's weight. That's going to be super important too. Melody brought up an important point about how mobility workouts can be uh, a lot of work for the client in and of themselves. And one reason why I believe that's the case is because people don't really like to bridge the gap between the fact of mobility being kind of an offshoot of strength. Right? People often use maybe. Um, more passive mobility drills that utilize body weight and that utilize gravity and utilize momentum and other things like that to feel good and loosen up and open up and so on. But if you think about things like cars, controlled articular rotations or isometric work and other hacks like that, they rely on muscular tension and contractile strength in order to create and access ranges of motion that you might not always be able to get to in regular dynamic movement. Right. And so that's where mobility being an offshoot of strength is uh, very important to understand. This is something that I talk to my students about a whole lot is that don't just think about drills of just going through these motions and feeling whatever and you get your heart rate up or whatever happens. Think about how much you're actually pushing your range of motion to exceed what it was before. If you're a hypermobile person, I'm not doing mobility work with you. There's no point in including that in a warm up. I'm doing stuff that will probably more aid stability, movement prep. CNS activation, heart rate stuff. There are other factors of a warm-up that matter, right? But mobility should be to increase range of motion and release synovial fluid. Right? And if those two things are achieved, then we're laughing. And that can often come from forcing deep contractions and forcing the strength of the muscles to pull a joint into the range of motion you want, right? And so uh, super, super important to understand that about mobility. Yeah, I like that. And uh, we've kind of been focusing on, you know, the, the two main lifts like squat and uh, deadlift. But I want to mention some of the upper body stuff you guys talked about. That's a, another key aspect, obviously, of training, as both you guys alluded to. Um, but especially to the basketball population, there's not a lot of people who think about how impactful um, upper body training can be, whether good or bad. I mean, you you may be familiar with Markel Fultz, um, former number one draft pick of the NBA, had an ongoing shoulder injury. Um, it, I don't know the details, but I, I think that there's like kind of a pointing of fingers of like, oh, his college team didn't handle it right. Or no, like his the team that drafted him didn't handle it right. Whatever, whatever the case may be, he's finally healthy now after like four or five years. But there was a point where it was like he might not play basketball again because he physically couldn't shoot the ball how he had shot the ball up to that point of his career. He couldn't get his his um, 
his hand under the ball, his elbow at this angle and, and push up. It was more of like a, he just didn't have the mobility. And I don't know again, what caused it, but that's an extreme example, but I see it all the time. And in these long limbed lifters and athletes, the, the rows are having the anterior, the glide of the, the humerus, um, kind of gliding forward, um, in the row pattern. So they're not really getting that squeeze on the scap or they're not activating the lats in the rows. Uh, same thing on the, on the presses. They're often, uh, thinner frames. So there's not a whole lot of mass on the chest. So coming down from that, uh, let's say a barbell deadlift, like they're not hitting that, that chest until their shoulder is going to roll forward. So things like floor press that you guys mentioned, uh, block presses, um, chest supported rows, things like that are huge in this population. Can you guys talk about maybe some of that at a deeper level and, and just shoulder health in general for these uh, longer limbed athletes? Well, anytime a longer a longer armed athlete is pressing, that's a lot of work. That bar is going to travel a very long distance, no matter what angle they're pressing at. Um, and not everybody's shoulders feel great at specific angles. So that's why there are all kinds of tools that we can use to kind of change the angle, change the width. You can always change the width that you're holding the bar at, find your groove that feels good. I'm a big fan of setting the shoulders in a deadlift so that there is no roll forward. You know, you really want to try to get that nice little arch in your spine so that your shoulders are at a, a good angle for, for pressing in the first place, um, which won't necessarily solve all those problems, but it, it helps a whole lot. Um, a lot of people think you have to have a, a super flat back in the, in the bench press, but taking a page from the power lifter diaries, you do want to have a little bit of an arch because it's just a better angle for your shoulders. Um, I think a lot of people have the tendency to press the bar off center. Like they'll press here or here, but it feels like it's here. And so that's something you have to pay a lot of attention to, especially with people with those longer arms, because if they're already going doing more work and now they're pressing at an angle that's way off, they're going to have a lot of issues with that press. So really getting that bar path down is a big deal. Um, but these partial movements are great. Uh, number one, for increasing the strength at certain ranges of motion. Like I said, we always want to address the weakest link. So where is their weak link? Is it at the top of the movement? Is it in the middle? Is it at the bottom? We can always adjust pins, use chains. We can use, use blocks. We can use the floor. We can do all of that stuff to train specific segments of a movement to try to get that movement stronger. And then, of course, triceps are huge and pressing. And if your triceps are weak, your press is going to be weak. And so doing a lot of tricep work is, is really important as well. Yeah, also, uh, like one of the lifts that was mentioned there as well, definitely for longer armed lifters, was the, the pin press, which uh, we haven't talked about yet too, right? And uh, pin presses, they allow a lifter uh, the stability and the confidence, first of all, because that bar is crashing to a point where it will never decapitate you. 
Um, but also uh, you have two different options now. You have the choice if you want to focus on eccentrics and lowering that weight slowly or focusing on strictly concentric. So you're letting that weight crash down and then you can get a little bit more pressing volume out of it without as much trauma to your muscles in that eccentric, which is where a lot of people get really sore and get really burnt out from it. So uh, if you want to strength train without as much hazard to your shoulders when you're a longer arm lifter, the pin press is a great option too. And um, on top of it, when we talk about the shoulder joint, we talk about shoulder glide, and we talk about other issues with the shoulder or discomfort when people are pressing, um, there's a whole section or a little sub, uh, there's a box in there talking about kyphosis and the, the, the thoracic spine and how important that is to pay attention to as well, because you're not going to have a healthy shoulder at all if you don't have healthy shoulder blades and healthy mid-back, right? Um, the mid-back is kind of the hub of it all because mid-back's not right and the shoulder blades won't be able to move around correctly. And if your shoulder blades can't move around correctly, then your shoulder itself is going to be all gummed up. And so uh, they kind of all work as three together. And so kyphosis is a real, real um, uh, important kind of like, uh, what's the word? It's a spearhead to it all. If you have that, if you're dealing with kyphosis, that rounding of that mid-back, uh, that's what you want to start getting looked at first in terms of being able to find that spine extension through your thoracic region. It's going to increase your mobility. It's probably going to make you feel a little bit better in the shoulders as well and have better function when you're doing it and probably better access your back and chest in different exercises that are meant to target those areas. 100%. And kyphosis, uh, like you mentioned, kind of that rolling forward of the shoulders, something that a lot of people don't think about is in this basketball population, you're dealing with some really tall athletes that have been tall all their lives, you know, even third, fourth, fifth grade. So they get into a habit of um, not not being like embarrassed of being tall, but like they they don't fit in at those young ages. So they develop some some slumping habits um, that they carry with them through life, let alone just the society that we live in now, uh, good or bad. But we're all on devices all day. And so. Those two things coupled with each other, I think, really can lend itself to that forward rolling of the shoulder and like that posture kind of being so forward. So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, that leads me to my my next question. This will be the last one. Then we'll get into some fun stuff. And that is assessments. Um, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about can be basically seen by an eye test. Like, you know, Lee walks into a room. I can immediately say yeah, that guy is built different. I'm going to have to figure out some different ways. Same thing for you, Melody. We're, we're going to easily be able to see some of this stuff, but are there any tests or assessments or like protocols that you guys are using with your clients and athletes to kind of rule out any major things or um, kind of include them in some of these topics that we discussed? For me, every single session is an assessment. How are you moving that day? The first thing I ask people when they come in is, how do you feel today? Every single time. And then after they do a lift, I said, how did that feel? And I expect them to communicate with me if there is discomfort or pain because we do not move through pain. Um, and so that's, those are my assessments. I don't feel like that, like giving us, you know, set of assessments on your first day, you know, is necessarily going to give you information. Like if you do those on Monday, that person might come in completely different, differently bodied on Wednesday. And so every day is an assessment. How are you moving today? Let's, let's see what we can do with that. Um, I echo that as far as what Melody just said. Uh, but also I, I will say this is that um, 
as I've spent more time doing this, I've spent less time focusing on exactly one fixed or standardized way of assessing someone at the very beginning. Um, one thing that I'm uh, that I teach in in school is the the functional movement screen. I got to teach that to uh, the students in, in in the class, and I make sure like that was something that I was all about back in say 2012 or so. But now I'm sort of just like a trained eye will do the overhead squat test and be able to say exactly what's going to happen in the next six tests if you know what the mm -hmm. results of that overhead squat are, right? And so all of that is just to say that. It can be a tool in your toolbox, but it doesn't need to be the be all and end all at all, right? Um, when I assess a first time client that I've never met before, or I've seen, I don't do anything special. I'll go through some basic mobility drills. I'll go through, I'll look, I'll sort of work my way backwards. So I'll look at a regular version of a lift that they would probably like to do on their own and then see, okay, well, you know what? There's this issue, this issue, let's regress, 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 maybe take it down to single leg, maybe take it away altogether, right? And the reason why I do it that way is because it doesn't take too much to be able to help somebody become a better functioning machine, right? We can start splitting hairs and thinking that, okay, you got to look at these internal rotators and do this particular exercise. We have to look at that and external rotation here, and then we have to look at this tension relationship there and there. I mean, I think that it can get a little bit redundant and most people don't need that level of detail in order to see improvements that they can really note, you know? And um, yeah, so when it comes to the, the, the mobility side of things or the, the assessment side of things, I keep it simple, you know, I'll do the mobility drills, I'll see whether there's discrepancies from one side to the other. And uh, like you were talking about with the eye test, I mean, walking in, you'll tell, you can be able to tell, especially with the experience that we have now, uh, working on projects like this one, like it's probably not even coming. It's probably not even in first mind, but even before first mind, we're already looking a client up and down to see what their body type is rather than just saying, mm -hmm. Oh, he's injured here. She's injured there. And so on. Let's fix this stuff. We're looking, okay, well, this person's got really long legs. So that means they're probably going to be good. This, 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 uh, if they got good ankle mobility, it'll probably be this, this, and this, let's take a look at their shoulder mobility. It's probably going to mean that if they can do that, then they're going to be perfect for this lift, which is going to serve them very well, blah, 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 blah. Right. So yep. it becomes something that it kind of goes hand in hand with just what we've been talking about all along. It just becomes second nature to start looking at that as part of the assessment too. What, what are your proportions, you know, and um, that does play a huge factor in a lot of stuff. Yeah, I can I can see it now. Like somebody walking into the gym, and and you guys are just like analyzing them. Like, oh yeah, that guy's short torso, short arms. Like almost like prejudging them. Like I know exactly what I would do if that was if I was that person. Well, yeah, and it plays to your your goal is to try to play to the strengths of the individual, right? And so when you're working with somebody, you I'm trying to find things that are going to make training them uh, and make them training a enjoyable for them, uh, b easier for me too, and c something that just cooperatively works, right? So we don't want to be always fumbling around to try to find the technique for this or try to find the way that this doesn't hurt while they're doing that and so on. Um, and, you know, just like at the beginning of each chapter of this thing, it says what the ideal body type is for a back squat, the ideal body type is for a single arm dumbbell row and so on and so forth. Right. And the same thing applies in the world of sports. Right. If you're thinking about a basketball player, I can tell you what body types aren't going to make the best center on the basketball court compared to the body types that will probably make a better center. Uh, I can tell you the body types that would make the best hundred meter sprinter compared to ones that won't. 
uh, compared to a body type that might be best for a triple jumper or high jumper, right? And so uh, all of these things, when you look at it in the sports world, this is something that is very common. You'll see much more of a homogeneous body type at the elite levels of a sport for high performance, depending on whether you're playing a certain position in a ball sport or if you're an individual sport athlete and you are elite at that individual sport, you're going to see similar body types at that level, right? But uh, when it comes to weight training, we often don't think about that, right? And we should. CrossFit, you're racing the clock and you're doing a lot of reps of a lot of compound movements. Of course, the winner of CrossFit's never going to be six foot 10. It's just not going to happen right? They're going to be a shorter individual, a shorter distances to travel and so on. And that's the way that it's always been, right? And there are going to be some outliers, but not enough to change the point. And so we have to pay attention to this and, and see whether or not when we're making our assessments as well, we factor that idea in that, you know, body types matter and that certain movements might be a little bit more of a struggle for these lifters based on body types and certain movements won't. So that's, uh, that's of utmost importance, especially these days in my own assessments. I like that. All right, it's time to have some fun now. I'm going to put you guys on the hot seat. We've been talking about the book for, for about an hour now. Now we're going to lighten it up, and I'm going to basically ask you guys like a bunch of random questions. You guys can give as short or as long of an answer as you want, and they're just kind of silly stuff just about nothing. All right? So we're going to start with Lee. Lee, what was your dream job growing up? Um, it changed a few times, but, uh, I remember at the beginning at the very beginning, I wanted to be a paleontologist when I was like a little, little kid. And, uh, I wanted to dig up dinosaur bones. I thought that was really cool. And, uh, I think it was probably around Jurassic park times as well. So that really reinforced it. I love that. That's my, my youngest Mason. He's stuck in that phase right now. So I definitely, I see the passion. I, I can understand why that was your dream job. Um, Melody, if you could only watch one movie for the rest of your life and you had to watch it every night before bed, what movie would that be? The Princess Bride. The Princess. Oh, you had that ready. There was no hesitation. Best movie ever. All right, Lee, what is the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you in the gym? Um, hmm. I actually have to think about that for a while. I don't know. I don't know what I it would know. be. I know what, what it is. Because it happened in my gym. We had that? an allergy attack from the lunch at the photo shoot. Okay. So, <laughs> and then yeah. he went and threw up. <gasps> oh, shit. Yep. So, yeah, that was uh, Melody uh, and uh, Melody and the other Lee. They, uh, they arranged to have um, lunch for everybody, right? And so a lot of sandwiches and stuff were put in there, were brought in and so on. And they were tasty. Um, it was all vegan stuff. And so the, the, the sauces that were made were made with nuts, right? And I have a nut allergy. I didn't know. So I thought it was just, you know, different kinds of, uh, you know, different uh, meat alternatives and so on. And I uh, didn't pay attention to the fact that there might have been like a cashew-based nut uh, uh, oils and stuff like that on there. And um, yeah, I remember, I think I got maybe three bites into this delicious sandwich. And I was like, this isn't good. This isn't good. Something's coming. It's going to happen. And so I needed to take like an hour off of the photo shoot to go outside and wait to throw up so I could feel better. And so that was it. It was, it was horrible. <laughs> that's all. That's, that's an awesome story. I'm not going to lie. That's. That sucks for you, but that's a good story. 
but entertaining for us. So, man, I feel that I'm allergic to peanuts too. So I, I feel your pain. All right, um, Melody, what is your most used emoji? I hope you have an iPhone, or this is going to backfire on me. Most used, oh boy. I think probably laughy face emoji is probably my most used one. It's pretty I standard. And this guy, uh, that one. Yeah, I love that one. Uh, <laughs> this one This one is the most important question of, of the entire podcast, okay? Lee, what does puh mean? Not answering that. <laughs> Dude, I thought I was going to have the most viral clip of the year right there. <laughs> you know, I'm going to... I'm going to keep this going. I'm going to keep this going for as long as I can because I probably get asked that once a day at this point. Everybody everywhere wants to know, and it's just become such a thing that it's become so beautiful and how hidden it's become in terms of the answer and how, like, it's gotten certain people angry because they've decided to be offended by the word, you know? And it's just, it's this made-up made word that people have decided to attach their own meanings to and they haven't ever gotten a definitive answer as to what my meaning of that word is. So I'm like, you know what? Hey, play around with it. Do what you want. I'm just over here, yo. Oh, my God, dude. I've I've said it to you, and I don't even know what it means. I just know what I think it means. Like, I have my own version, I guess. Oh, my God. That's good, man. I, I thought I was going to have you. I should make it a No, literally. Every time. Like, at the end of every semester, your students should have to define "puh" in in their own in their own words. <laughs> oh shoot! All right, um, Melody, this is this is you keep getting the weird ones. I'm sorry. Do you believe in ghosts? Oh, you know, I I I I, I don't, but I kind of want to. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a lot of people have told me some stories that I'm kind of like, well, I have a client who's a cop and she is not like, she's not like a ghosty kind of person. You know, she's not, she's pretty down to earth. And her mm. husband is, she told me this story about her, like she kept seeing a little girl in her house and she never told her husband because she thought he'd make fun of her. So she just never said anything. And then one day they were getting ready for bed and she looks up and the little girl is at the foot of the bed and she looks over at her husband and he's like, and they both, and, and they had both been seeing this little girl and neither of them told each other because they thought they'd make fun of each other. So like stories like that, I'm kind of like, Holy shit. <laughs> no, I'm out. I'm moving immediately. That's crazy. All right, Lee. Last one for you, man. This is this is this is gonna be a doozy. All right, you have to start one, bench one, and cut one. Twenty-four-year-old life coach, internet fitness guru, and the online coach who has never trained a single person in person. Um. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna cut the life coach first. Um, so that's gonna that's gonna be the cut, and I'll say the the guru is gonna be the person I start, okay. and I think that the online fitness person is gonna be the person that I bench. 
Um, I mean, listen, it's it's you're you're between a rock and a hard place in all situations here, and it's it's three different versions of absolute just like abysmal evil. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to choose it that way. And uh, I think that I could live with myself if I did it that way. And, you know, the lifespan of the the guru is probably not going to be that long anyway, as far as a fitness career goes. So I think that the industry won't be hurt too badly if it goes that way. That's smart. I like that. I like that. All right. Last one for you, Melody. This is, so I was doing some research on you guys, uh, just to prep for the show and everything. Just saying, I, I know that you're a singer. Um, so you, you, you sing more like metal and rock, but I want to know if you were a rapper, what would your stage name be? What would my setup? Probably, probably something stupid like low vegan or something stupid. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! I think that takes the cake. I mean, there's nothing else I can say. Like, if it just makes sense today, <laughs> I like that. Oh man, this was fun. I, I really appreciate you guys' time. Uh, jumping on here and uh, going over this book again i'll show it on screen you guys make sure to pick this up uh tell the people where they can find this where they can find you guys how they can get the book all that good stuff yeah the book's available on amazon uh uh, amazon.ca amazon.com and uh, i believe amazon will ship it internationally as well if not that it's available digitally as an ebook so you can get that obviously anywhere in the world um, it is going to be in select stores, apparently. Apparently, it's more of an academic resource, so the stores are going to be limited in their distribution. However, Barnes & Noble, Indigo in Canada, certain places, I'm going to be on the lookout for that. Um, more importantly, Human Kinetics, us.humankinetics.com. You can find it there, and uh, you can find it straight from the publishing company uh, directly that way. might change the shipment time, I don't know. Um, and those are the main places to find it, but you can also find it in the brand like barnesandnoble.com, of course, and places like that too. Um, even if uh, I remember Google searching the title itself and there were so many different like distributors and sellers of this place that were housing this book. So, uh, it's just good to know that it's out there in pretty big circulation. Um, and as far as each of us, like, uh, for me, you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I have the main three. And uh, it's at Coach Lee Boyce, Coach Lee Boyce. And my website is leeboyce.com. So you can find all my articles and media and podcasts like this one and uh, just blog articles about stuff that I see in the industry and whatever other updates that I have, speaking schedule and things like that. That's all there on my website. Um, I, too, have a website um, that is at flawlessfitness.com. And on Instagram, I am... The number five FT of Fury and the number one, so five feet of Fury, uh, one. <laughs> um, and then, uh, and then I, you just look up my name on Facebook and you can find me there. Um, and uh, yeah, if you like uh, pictures of dogs and cats and guinea pigs, my Instagram's awesome. <laughs> once in a while, there's some music stuff, and I don't use it the way you're supposed to use it, like a fitness professional. Like I'll put some educational material on there. I'll lift something, I'll bend something, and then there's a picture of a guinea pig. Like, it's like, it's a very random <laughs> day. <laughs> hey, it's all good. It's it's you. It's authentically you. I love it. That's awesome. Well, guys, again, thank you so much for uh, 
taking the time and, and going, going over this stuff with me. Great to get a deeper look at this book. And hopefully you guys out there listening, go and check it out. Again, amazing resource. And uh, you guys will find a lot of nuggets in the book. So check it out. And uh, yeah, thanks again, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And that was episode 12 with Lee and Melody, the authors of Strength Training for All Body Types. I really hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. It was great to kind of connect with them and get a deeper look at all of the work that goes into a project like this. Really impressive book, really awesome resource. I hope you guys take advantage of and go out and get. Now, if you could do me one favor, as I always ask for feedback, reviews, shares, all that is great, but I want you guys to take it a step further and go to whatever platform you're listening to this show on and leave a nice comment for Lee and Melody, kind of showing them the impact that they made. So talk about something you learned or something that you appreciated that they that they said, or go get the book and leave them feedback on the book. But basically, I want to be able to send them the link to this podcast. And in the comments, they can see messages from you guys who enjoyed the show leaving positive feedback for them so they can know how big of an impact they are truly making with their advice, their resources, and most importantly, their book. So if you guys can do that, not only does that help me grow the show and and get feedback on the show, but it helps me show my guests how important they are and how much I appreciate them. So again, this was episode 12 with Lee Boyce and Melody Schoenfeld. Great episode. Hope you guys enjoy and I'll see y'all next week.